0: expect to learn a new way. Each week you'll hear trainings, listen in on mini coaching sessions from people on your same path, and learn from other guest professionals. I'm so glad you've joined me. Hey there, welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. I was a featured guest on Caitlin Parsons, a modern girl podcast, and the episode turned out so well. It was full of so much value and I had to share it with you here today.
1: So without further ado, let's get started in the episode. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Me too. Yeah. We literally (laughs) just talked for almost an hour before getting records. So for everybody listening, we're just having a little love fest over here, but there there are so many things that I don't know about you including your first body awareness moment which we're about to get into. So I'm stoked. Are you ready to do this?
0: I am. Okay,
1: cool. So It's going to
0: unravel. Yeah, it's going to unravel some concepts like self-compassion. <laughs> Ooh.
1: Let's let's do it. Let's take a breath. And this is a safe space. And the first question that we ask everybody who comes into this space is your first body awareness moment. So that moment that you realized, hey, I'm in a body. This means something in the culture that I'm living in. What did that look like for you? And how did it impact your relationship with your body and or your relationship with food?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm going to say my body awareness moment kind of after all that, I'm going to skip to the end, but I'll say that my because it's my strongest body awareness moment for me, like becoming aware of my body and what I looked like was immediately woven into my life because I danced my entire life. And so it was very much, you know, how you looked was very important. And so my body image got to a place that wasn't very positive, kind of in my teens And I was working on coming back from that. And I was in this yoga class and I was so frustrated. I went to this yoga class with my mom. It was like the easiest, quote unquote, easiest class I've ever been in. And I was working on my relationship with exercise and being gentle and like being present in my body and really changing the way I viewed exercise. And I was in this class and the whole time I was just frustrated because I felt like this is like stretching. This is so stupid. We're not doing anything. And towards the end of class, the instructor started talking about the light that was, you know, shining out from us. And she was just talking about how, why it's so important that I was there and how much it meant that I had showed up. And I remember thinking, you know, why am I not good enough? Like, why is none of this good enough? Why is this too gentle? Why is this too whatever? And I started crying in class. And I just felt like I was in my body for the first time, kind of on the other side of it. Like I wasn't thinking about what I looked like, you know, it was dark in the room and there was a candle burning and I was just in my body in the most self-compassionate way that I had ever experienced.
1: Oh my God. I feel like I'm there right now. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And isn't it, isn't it so cool how, you know, we go to these classes and we attend workshops and, and even online things and just how one single statement can make such a profound impact on somebody. And mm-hmm. I think that's really a testament to your willingness to receive feedback like that and information.
0: Yeah, it, it really was. And it's almost, you know, when you're describing an event that's so powerful I almost feel like words can't capture how much that moment meant to me. And just that experience of, yeah, just suddenly being in my body in a kind way. And it was, yeah, it was incredible.
1: I'm I'm curious what part of your life this was. Was this like post-college or in high school? Where Where were you in your journey at that
0: point? Yeah, I was post-college. And I really had worked through a lot of intuitive eating and healed my relationship with food. And for me, I had a history of either making myself exercise for aesthetic reasons or pushing myself to burn calories. I never really, aside from dance, I never really enjoyed exercise or I wasn't eating enough really to be fueled for it. So it was never enjoyable. And exercise was the last piece for me, or I guess body image really, but that, that day that I found it, it was when I was... I was post-college and like I said, really healed in, in a lot of things with, with food. And it did, it just, I was working on being more gentle and not like also not avoiding exercise. So basically I went from a place of, I actually wrote an article about this publicly that it really was like on and off for like seven years before I really felt like comfortable exercising and that it was really coming from an authentic place. It would always be this kind of start and stop. And so this was in, in the end of that, when it really started to stick.
1: So what, what shifted for you in terms of the authenticity around movement? Like what, what's an example of how you moved your body before when it was coming more from that place of doing and rigidity versus Mm -hmm. just true authenticity? What do you have any examples that come to mind that you can illuminate for us?
0: yeah I think in the way it felt in that class was a like a level of frustration with a lot of the negative thoughts that I had. It was very much a lot of identity of, okay, I should want to be a runner or yeah. I should like to lift heavy weights or of these like this kind of like hierarchy of what I perceived to be the quote unquote right way or the best way or the ideal way to work out. I really just like resisted moving in ways that actually felt good to my body. And so really the change was, I remember thinking a lot, oh, this doesn't count. (laughs) Like walking or doing a gentle yoga class or stretching. And so this doesn't count or even a dance class. This doesn't count. And so I just had so many ideas about what exercise quote unquote should be that that's really where the shift was that I even went to this class with my mom. I think that's why I went. I'm like, oh, sure. I'll go for her. It wasn't for me and who walked away with the <laughs> best gift
1: Yeah. That had. <laughs> yeah, go for your mom and come out completely transformed. That's awesome. So how did how did that change your relationship with movement after that? What did intuitive movement start to look like for you?
0: Yeah, it was the first time that I realized that movement is supposed to feel good and even though I intellectually knew that, I hadn't really experienced it for myself or found exactly. And that's why I think it was so start and stop for me because I would come into it with, okay, I've got the food stuff figured out. This is really authentically aligned with how I feel about food and and it all makes sense. And so how can I kind of plug this over to exercise? So kind of after that, it was just this glimpse of, wow, I actually feel better and I have scoliosis. Mm -hmm. And so I really have to move to keep my muscles from not getting tense, just from the curvature in my spine and all of the ways that scolios- scoliosis throws you off center. And so it just releasing that tension in my body in that class felt so good. And then I also actually, not too long after that, and I think this really solidified things for me moving forward, participated in physical therapy. And it was really about just strengthening those smaller muscles around my spine and learning how to release certain muscles. and. It felt like, oh, this is this is what you're supposed to do. You're like you're maintaining your body, you're taking care of your body, you're not trying to achieve the more toned thing or the stronger thing or the next thing or what. Not that that can't be part of what you do, but where I was at the time, I had had so much of that try hard and push, 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 push that I really needed that like gentle and functional care that. It just shifted things. And then I started to see, once I started to see exercise in that way, I, it's like, I finally got what everybody was talking about. I'm like, oh, people actually look forward to exercise. And now I understand why, because it does feel really good, especially when you have permission to listen to yourself. There's no, you know, routine or plan that you're supposed to stick to. And I've just felt like, almost like I was still in the diet mentality around exercise where I felt like, well, if I only go two days a week, that's not good enough. I should really go five days a week and I should do more or be training more. And, you know, all those things, all those thoughts that just circled and circled and circled. And just, yeah, the combination of those two events, it just, it wasn't, it didn't become like super, super consistent after that, but I was definitely changed. And now, exercise, what I found is I love variety and I love trying new things. And that's not, I don't know how I was in other areas of my life. You know, I tend to be the type of person that, you know, likes a plan and a structure and let's do it this way. And so giving myself permission to not attach an identity to the type of workout that I was doing made it more fun because I thought, oh, I'll take a dance class. Oh, I'll do Zumba with a friend. Oh, sure. You know, let's go for a hike. And it just, everything felt joyful and explorative instead of a should, 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 should. And, and it didn't take away from what I had done.
1: Mm hmm. I have so many questions. The first thing that's coming to mind in your story is I want to hear more about dance and how this shaped your relationship with movement. Is this something that you did all through your adolescence or was it just a short mm-hmm. stint? What, what did that look like for you?
0: Yeah, I did it from age four on into college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The-
1: Well, that's fascinating because that's (laughs) thanks for sharing that detail. You
0: know, for a couple years or so.
1: (laughs) My whole life, no big deal. Okay. So there were some there was some serious unlearning that that was happening here. I I was not a dancer growing up. I've worked with a lot of dancers. I have a lot of friends who are dancers, but the identity in dance culture and just this external validation, as well as the rigidity and the rules and kind of like what you're saying, like checking boxes, Mm -hmm. how many workouts you're getting in or the way that your body looks and all these things. It's, it's so highly aesthetically driven Mm -hmm. that it's interesting to me as somebody who has not grown up dancing, because it's such a creative, like seemingly embodied sport. Yeah but at the same time like did you ever feel did you feel like you were in your body or did you feel like you were in your head most days
0: i so it's interesting that you asked that question because i was a team dancer so even though even when i danced in a studio it was very team oriented and so what that means is you are you're really valuing that everyone they used to call it like is a routine clean you know does everyone have their arm in the same place at the same time is it at this angle and when I think back, what I loved about dance, what was so satisfying for me was definitely to be up on stage with other people and feel their energy up there and know that everyone was in it together. It was super cool. But there was this element of perfection mm-hmm. <laughs> that I loved, like the high of hitting a movement perfectly and landing a leap perfectly or just doing everything you know, in line with whoever. And so... I always felt like I was in my body, but it really, in hindsight, it was more about just being in the mirror and hitting it perfectly. And that made me a good team dancer. And I, and that's why I've taken some dance classes as an adult, because it's fun to enjoy it in an embodied way, or I'll just dance around my house all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the song comes on and I'm free flowing. And I imagine that's what it would have been more like had I been a bit more embodied when I was younger.
1: And that's so interesting. And also from the identity piece that you're describing in your life as well too, just, you know, growing up with this, almost like this dance career, it sounds like, that's a long time to commit to one one thing in, in your life, right? Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that's probably a lot of pressure as well too in living up to that identity that you're, It's creating security for yourself and joy for yourself, I'm sure. But also how other people perceive you too, being that dancer.
0: Absolutely. It was a huge thing that I was really proud of. And I liked saying, you know, I'm on the dance team and this is what I do. And it was cool, you know, and that's where where all of my friends are from now. But I was definitely attached to that.
1: Mm -hmm. What was your relationship with food
0: like growing up? So it really... Was very good for most of my life. I remember when I was in high school, my ex boyfriend's older sister, I looked up to her so much. And in hindsight, it was when she started dieting. And so I remember, you know, getting chicken parmesan out to dinner or ordering a hamburger or all these things that, you know, I just never really gave a thought to what I was eating. And I remember she started ordering salads (laughs) and, you know, fat free dressing at the time. And I, and she would talk about eating healthy. And I didn't really care. I wasn't impacted by it. But I remember just thinking it was so interesting. And I did feel like, oh gosh, you know, am I doing something wrong? But I, I didn't do anything about that at the time. And then when I was in college and I was dancing, same. I, I was really kind of unaffected. I didn't I did have a lot of because of that perfection, I really held my body to a certain standard that I felt like I should look like. And So, there's always that internal pressure. But again, I didn't really do anything about it. And our first year, we went as a freshman and we went to our nationals. And I remember seeing these girls that I was comparing myself to, of course, and thinking, oh, I'm going to get in shape for next year, like as if I wasn't in shape. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just completed this routine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that was, I declared to myself silently that I was going to, you know, quote unquote, do something about it. And so then, you know, unfortunately, I started restricting my food intake and not too long after that did switch over to nutrition as a major. And I absolutely wanted to know how to eat perfectly and what I could be doing to not really gain an edge and dance at that point. But it was again, like you said, it was more of starting to wrap it wrap up into my identity of this was this, you know, thing that I could do that was somehow superior or I don't know what I thought, I guess <laughs> I was always my own worst enemy, some sort of, I don't know what I was comparing to just some sort of thing that I had in my head that I had to be. Yeah. So it's uh, at some point, that's when I started to just really internalize anything that I was learning in nutrition school as, you know, what I should be doing. And
1: had you ever thought about going to nutrition school before you started restricting your food? Yes and No.
0: I was in pharmacy and I liked that I did. And I, I worked in pharmacies, both in the hospital and an outpatient to really kind of try and gain experience because I think it's so
1: hard to pick what you want to do <laughs> when you're in college. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> right. <laughs> just pick what you want to do the rest of your life when you're 18 years old. Exactly. With no so, life experience, <laughs> no adult life experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh, no pressure. Just see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So I, I done the right thing, right? I got that real world experience. And I realized that I didn't really like pharmacy that much, or I just didn't really maybe picture myself doing that. You know, I always had these ideas about, you know, you have to have this degree that leads to a career and it's got to be, you know, math, science, whatever, it's got to be perfect and the right, you know, (laughs) as if no one appreciates art. You know, I just really had a lot of rigid ideas about what, what mattered. So I was a good family friend of mine was a registered dietitian and I was relieved because I did want to help people. And that's what I, what I didn't like about pharmacy is I felt like I couldn't connect with people as much. Mm. And yeah, you know, I liked that counseling aspect. So the family friend exposed me to nutrition and that it was, I shadowed with her, of course, perfectly Mm. checking the box. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I loved it. I did. And so I think in hindsight, it was definitely wrapped up in there, but at the time I thought, okay, this is preventative. You know, I'm going to prevent people Hmm. from having to take medication, which at this point, you know, I, I feel differently. I think that, you know, medication and food go together really great for Mm -hmm. people, whatever they need to take care of their bodies. But at the time, that's what I thought. That's why I decided to change.
1: So. How did that impact your relationship with food when you made the decision to change? Did it exacerbate it in terms of the restriction, did it balance it out? What what did you notice? It
0: definitely upped the ante because like everything I was approaching at the time was you know to be a good dietitian or a nutrition student or whatever, I must internalize and embody every single thing that I'm learning in school and So it was, it was silly stuff. Like, you know, I remember seeing this girl that was in my class who ate carrots and celery (laughs) out of a bag. And I thought, that's what I should eat. That's vegetables. That's Mm -hmm. what's good for you. And that's what dietitians do. And this other guy was in our class and he, I remember him saying, oh, you shouldn't eat microwave popcorn. That's terrible. All the oils on the bag. And I, that was one of the foods that I ate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I crossed that off the list. And it just, I really was so permeable to whatever I was hearing. And I didn't have, I didn't yet have the maturity and level of understanding of nutrition as a whole. So, kind of like a lot of consumers, I would, oh, coffee's good. Oh, no, coffee's bad. Shoot. Okay. Get rid of it. Oh, okay. So this food's good and this food's bad because I was just following whatever new study was out or whatever I was hearing in addition to what I was learning in school, which, really for a long time was really basically science and nutrition metabolism. Like I didn't really get into a lot of the food, food stuff until later on in my education, last couple of years. Yeah, I wish I hadn't heard it that way. And and when I found intuitive eating and healed my relationship to food, I had to go backwards and think about, like, I'll give you an example. When I was in school, I learned that whole wheat bread was good for you, at least how I heard it at the time. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I remember thinking, okay, then if I eat white bread, it's bad, you know, and I started to develop all these rules about it. And now I know that the reason whole wheat bread is typically recommended is because it's important for us to get enough fiber in a day, but I can appreciate the nuance of, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to have whole wheat bread every single time and that you have to hit your fiber needs every single day, but that also the composition of your day and your meals you know what if you have white bread cuz you really like that on a grilled cheese but you have it with lentil soup well you're getting plenty of plenty of fiber <laughs> you know from the lentil soup so i was so focused on eat this not that in fact that was really popular back then do you remember when those books came oh, out yes. yeah <laughs> those were like on my bookshelf
1: <laughs> we can just burn them all <laughs> yeah, I I never actually bought them. But I remember, I remember going to Barnes and Noble. And this was like a super disordered thing that I would do when I was really struggling with food, I would like get all these diet books and just like plop down in the middle of the diet aisle and just like, mm-hmm. read them for hours and hours and hours and figure out what I should and shouldn't be eating kind of like yourself. And that was always on the stack of books, eat this, yeah. not that and You know, what I'm hearing from your story that I can really relate to personally is just like having this out-of-body experience with food based on identity, based on rules, based on fear, based on these shoulds and shouldn'ts and all of these things. And what's so beautiful about hearing this from you, Erica, is knowing this moment that you had in this yoga class of just surrendering and just giving yourself that permission to say, it's enough. Mm-hmm. like this is enough i am enough mm-hmm. and to it sounds like begin making that that transition from living your life by shoulds and shouldn'ts and just truly embodying what works for you
0: absolutely it's i remember one of the most radical things to me at the time when i was learning about intuitive eating was the idea that if you didn't like a food that was deemed quote unquote healthy, it didn't matter (laughs) that you Mm. didn't have to, Mm. that that meant nothing about you or your health. And that was so powerful to me. Mm. It's so simple.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so the first time that you learned about intuitive eating, what was your reaction as a dietitian?
0: Oh my gosh. I felt it's the only reason I'm a dietitian I almost didn't go into practice because I was studying to take my exam and I thought I cannot do this. If this is what learning about nutrition oh my God. does, I'm not doing it for anyone. I'm not doing it to anyone.
1: Oh, wow. So you learned about intuitive eating while you were still in school, getting your dietetics degree. It was right after school. I had wow. just finished my internship. Damn. Oh my God. Yeah. So I had to make that decision.
0: Oh my gosh. I, I started seeing a therapist and, um, awesome.
1: <laughs> we're yeah, big I mean, proponents of therapy in this community.
0: It was. And I remember, cause I, I kept delaying taking the exam. Finally, I thought, I guess I need to talk to somebody about this because I had been studying for months and I just couldn't do it. Oh my and, goodness. Yeah. And, and she, she helped me so much. And just really understanding what anxiety was and why I was feeling anxious and why I was out of sync. I found intuitive eating, gosh, it really was like late night internet searches. And I don't remember how I came across the book. What were you searching? Do you remember? I don't. I remember coming across this blog it was called The Donut Eating Dietitian. I actually think I started a blog too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sure to
1: link it in the show. <laughs>
0: hopefully, hopefully it's not still out there. <laughs> who knows what it's done? It's probably thinking about eating whole wheat bread and, you know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I just remember finding this this dietitian's blog who, yeah, she was called The Donut Eating Dietitian. I wish I could find her now and if she still exists, but... I remember her talking about, you know, be, being the donut eating dietitian. That she was the first person that I came across. This idea of you can be a, a health professional and eat these foods, and that it doesn't mean you're some sort of phony or that you're promoting whatever or you're not. You're not, you know, practicing. I was big on integrity and practicing what I preach. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and yet, I just needed to change up what I preached.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and. Yeah, that's I think that's how I found her. I how I found intuitive eating was through her. Yeah, like I said, it was radical. And the book itself, I still have it just because it's sentimental to me. And I have so many highlighted sections. And there is, you know, those little page markers. I have one on almost every page. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm reading. Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body, is not an apology. And literally every single page is tabbed. It's I totally, I, totally get it.
0: Yeah, it's prolific. Everything that, that she says in there, it just...
1: Yeah. So let's just bring it back to compassion for a moment. Because one of the things that I'm really hearing from your story that in hindsight, we can talk about, but in the moment, it's, it's really scary. You just spent how many years committing your life to achieving this degree Mm -hmm. and being faced with like, and especially at, at that age too. I mean, I think everybody who has been in their early adulthood about to start their career can understand the gravity of that choice in Mm -hmm. feeling like a fraud or feeling the shift in security with making a change like that. And Mm -hmm. And also the anxiety that comes up around all of that as well too. So, how did you decide to start your practice? What were some you said you like to practice what you preach? So, Mm -hmm. what did you start preaching? And how did you how did you begin building your practice once you made the decision to I'm assuming take your test and pass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist: I'm not a dietitian. Actually, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't report me. No, I, it was it was it was really emotional to finally take the test, and I did all of my courses. I did supervision, and I hadn't taken my test until after I became a dietitian. So I did feel philosophically i thought okay this is it i'm i'm in this this makes sense to me and i will become a dietitian because this this relationship to food being the heart of it, mm-hmm. it it just made so much sense and and almost i think about it like i had i had glasses on that were distorted and so everything i was hearing and learning was through this lens and intuitive eating helped me realize how important that lens was and that that's what the piece was that I hadn't I hadn't put together and so when I when I got a job this was 2008 so I couldn't be too picky I had to take right. what was there and I was fortunate enough to get a job with the Marine Corps base in North Carolina and I worked at the hospital and I got to see people in my office in an outpatient counseling setting as well as seeing people acutely if they were in the actual hospital I was in charge of the psych ward as well and so I was exposed to eating disorders I was exposed to trauma I was exposed to people with co-occurring anxiety disorders and also I was working with a population of people that had to maintain height and weight standards for their career and it was heavy mm-hmm. it was it was a lot and I I feel like I treated in hindsight I treated those people with as much compassion as I could because they're in a tough spot where they're engaging in disordered eating behaviors, but it's to maintain a career that they want or get a promotion that they want. And so what do you do with that? And so a lot of times I just really educated them about their bodies and how it sounded like, you know, maybe they were trying to exist below a set point weight and that it might take some sort of, you know, dieting for them at the time or how it impacted their psyche, at least so they didn't, so they knew that they weren't crazy, obsessed with food, but primarily they were dieting and they weren't yeah. eating enough. And
1: it was fascinating. So I, I was so lucky that that was my first job. Wait, can because, I ask a question about that real quick yeah. before you go forward? Because yeah. we've never talked about this on the podcast, I don't think. And we have, we have a variety of people and professions who listen to this. And mm-hmm. the reality is there are so many careers that emphasize a height and weight standard to be successful in the career. So whether you are in the army or marines, whether you're in dance, whether you're in acting or modeling or something related to having your body on display in some way and having to fit a certain size to be successful. What would you say to anybody who's listening who's like, "Damn, like I I feel trapped right now, but I also love my career way too much to to do anything about it, how would you educate them right now?
0: Oh, sure. That's, I would say two answers because one with the military, it's, it's systemic. And I'm not, I'm not up currently on if any of that has changed with the height and weight standards. So maybe they have, but I think at the time it kind of was what it was. And so do you make peace with that? And you find ways to, Be okay somehow and understand that it's not you. But then I think there's other situations where you have to look at your life holistically, like in a, what are the benefits of this? What do you get from this? And what are the side effects? So if like for you being obsessed with food and maybe binging or feeling inadequate all the time, or not like fully living your life is a side effect of you keeping your body a certain way for a profession, then I don't know, maybe that's something to think about. I've had clients who have done a variety of things. Some people find that they have to walk away from a sport because of their mental health, even though they love the sport. And I just can't imagine how hard that decision is to make. I've had wrestlers choose to wrestle in a higher weight class so that they're not stuck maintaining a weight that's too low for them. I wonder if something like that would be fitting for someone who was maybe a model or an actor of some kind where maybe there's some different types of roles that could be had so that you're able to exist in a body that it's a bit more natural to you? What a good question. That's such a tricky... I've got to imagine that's so hard to navigate.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that you just shared some really great insight in your own expertise with that. And it's just such a double-edged sword. It is Mm -hmm. so systemic, like you're saying. And it's also it's moving at a snail's pace too. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Like, do we yeah. keep doing this and participate in the system or do we change the system and just like nobody participates for a while and change that, right? Like it, it's confusing, but it's also, I think you're bringing up a lot of good points. There's a lot of things to look at here. First of all, individuality and your lived experience in that mm-hmm. career choice and how it's impacting you and your life. And the reality is not every single person is struggling physically, mentally, and emotionally in these careers. I think a, a large population is unfortunately, but there's a lot of people who aren't either. Making the choice is really specific for the individual. And I think, and I, I'd be curious to have your opinion on this as well too. Bottom line, get support get support. This decision is so difficult to make on your own in navigating the nuances of a decision like this. If you're in an aesthetic career choice like this,
0: hundred percent, whether that's a therapist, your parents, your agent, people who love you, people who knew you before people who know you now. I mean, it's gotta be everybody. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So thank you for, for pausing and just going off on a tangent with me on in that direction. So I know that you are also a certified eating disorder registered dietitian as well, too. Did that come later on in your career or how did you make the decision to specialize in that?
0: Yeah, I, it did. So when I was working with the military, I did work with a lot of eating disorders and I hadn't really... Chosen it to be a path per se, but I understood them. So when I moved back to Columbus and started my private practice, I started, I saw everybody, whoever was referred to me by their provider, I would work with them. And word just got out that I worked with eating disorders. And because as a dietitian, it is a specialty area typically. And as I started to see more and more eating disorder clients, it became apparent to me that. I would really want to participate in continuing education and certifications to know even more about who I was working with and understand them more. And it takes a couple of years to get your certified eating disorder certification because it involves a lot of supervision and continuing education and reading and testing and retesting so that you're always up on the latest research. And that was how I came to it because I just, I finally declared, okay, this is what I want to do. And this is who I want to work with rather than kind of seeing everybody and then having a subset of my clients be eating disorders. Mm.
1: So what have you discovered in specializing in eating disorders in terms of the intersection of eating disorders and disordered eating? Mm -hmm. And especially as it relates to the culture that we're in right now Mm -hmm. and the nuances of health and just how murky the waters can get in wellness. I'm curious your expert opinion on knowing how to distinguish it. And also, I just kind of want to jam on this for a while with you too. Do you think that there's a lot of people who have eating disorders who are flying under the radar because it's in the name of health in some way? Or would you just say it's disordered eating? What's your opinion?
0: Oh, yeah. I love this question because it's one that I'll say a couple things. So first and foremost... When I'm working with clients who are recovering from an eating disorder, the disordered culture that we live in and how many people are disordered eaters is difficult for them because they're trying to overcome something and this you know, anxiety that they have in their brains around food and overcome unhelpful beliefs that they've developed as a result of having an eating disorder. And so these beliefs tend to be reinforced through people who engage in disordered eating or participate in our culture which is you know impossible to not do on some level and so that's like just a quick aside is that it's really hard for people it's almost like once you get an eating disorder it's like okay you can't do that anymore you're not allowed to do that or you should do this or and and when you're recovering you're like well wait a minute i i know my sister doesn't eat carbs at dinner why do i have to you know so there's this element of like when you're in treatment like ideally every single person would receive the education that people do nutritionally when they're in eating disorder treatment. And so all that to say though, like I really want to focus on how disordered eating, like there's this big spectrum. And so I think about people who might have a really solid, healthy relationship with food and be in a good spot. And then there's this whole spectrum of people who maybe they abuse laxatives a little bit, maybe they engage in purging behaviors a little bit, maybe they exercise obsessively maybe they're obsessed with what they're putting in their bodies or there's a moralistic tone to what they're doing or maybe they're restricting food intake you know all these these behaviors right and then it kind of slides over further into like what you would call a clinically definable eating disorder and the way i see it is like i don't want anybody to get an eating disorder like i want there to be a level of like prevention and seriousness around disordered eating so that it doesn't continue to slide into that you know like and it's a weird thing where you're like, I think because it's so normalized, if you're a disordered eater, you're thinking, oh, well, I don't have an eating disorder. Right yeah.
1: You know? Well, that's where it gets confusing in our culture, I think, because to your point, disordered eating has become so normalized. Yeah. Like the example that you shared of my sister doesn't eat carbs at dinner. I mean how would you classify that? And also, when would you recommend somebody reach out for their own individual support, or even just begin to think about taking a look at some of their habits and behaviors and and beliefs around food as well, too? When does it become an issue for somebody?
0: Mm -hmm. It's a couple things. So a lot of people who engage in disordered eating will end up in a place where they tend to or binge. Mm -hmm. So that's when most people give me a phone call. Because that's very distressing to them. For the people that don't, there's this element of incongruency in your life. You just know that things aren't right. Or there's a level of obsession that's there that maybe your family member has pointed out to you. Or maybe you do something like turn down a friend to go do a workout. And then you get home and you say to yourself, why did I do that? What is wrong with me? And you start to realize that things might be a bit off track. And it can really feel fairly subjective. But those are, I I would say, kind of being out of alignment with your value system. Mm -hmm. And for some people, engaging in binging or overeating are the biggest things that kind of wake you up to realize that things aren't okay.
1: Yeah, I I like these examples a lot. And this is the demographic that I specialize in. And I'm pretty serious about that. I, I don't work with active eating disorder clients. I do work with disordered eating clients. And what i found and i think is a common theme in these examples is it's really this level of preoccupation with food and yeah. body and the amount of mental space and mental energy and attention that someone is giving this in their life and what mm-hmm. to your point what values is compromising through this energy output
0: absolutely and i appreciate you saying it that way cuz i realize that maybe people could be listening to me speak and think that you know there's this level of like anti health or anti nutrition but really it's It's tuning into that level of obsessiveness or compulsivity or, you know, kind of hierarchy and priority. Mm -hmm. That that really is the thing. It's almost like if, you know, we saw two people in a yoga class or two people eating a salad together, you know, one may be having disordered eating and the other may not.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that. This is something that is constantly a question in sessions that I have with clients and also just something that I hear a lot about and people who are curious about intuitive eating. But I would love your professional take on the concept of gentle nutrition as a dietitian, as an eating disorder specialist, as an intuitive eating counselor. Where do we draw the line with nutrition and intuitive eating? How do you know when like your example that you gave before of white bread and wheat bread and why somebody would choose either of those things, especially somebody who has disordered eating behaviors or an active eating disorder, who is hyper aware to nutrition information, where's the balance of just letting it go and letting it be and also prioritizing just information about food that can be really valuable for somebody as well too? How do you navigate that with somebody? It's almost a, I'm going to
0: speak to it as it relates to healing. It's a process question. It's a process that people go through. So I think in terms of gentle nutrition and how it relates to what we're choosing to eat and you're touching on the intention, which is so important. And I think that's where there's a lot there as well and the intention comes from the relationship to food and kind of the reversal of deprivation. So I find that a lot of people who are maybe interested in intuitive eating but they're scared to not be healthy perhaps or if I did that then you know surely I would be the person eating pop tarts for breakfast 5 years from now or whatever.
1: <laughs> I think that's a really common fear for most people who are the healthy eaters struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders who are really being pulled to intuitive eating, but they feel like it's the cupcake diet or something like that.
0: Oh my gosh, totally. And I think, I always think that how scared you are to experience that speaks to the degree of deprivation that you're currently experiencing. And that's where I, it depends on who you are and where you're at and the type of person you are. I was having a conversation about this with some members in my online community the other night where one of the things. That I tend to recommend to people who do feel like, oh my gosh, I would never stop eating. And so, how do I, you know, integrate any concept of intuitive eating into my relationship to food? Because I don't want to, you know, lose my edge or be unhealthy or whatever. So I have kind of a like a food exposure process where you might bring in, you know, one food at a time and maintain the rest of your, you know, quote unquote eating regimen. But you're bringing in a new food, maybe say three times a week, four times a week, whatever. And you're telling yourself, okay, I'm going to have, you know, this much of this today and I'm going to have more tomorrow and I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And you keep practicing. And so with <laughs> somebody in my community the other night, she's like, you know, I'm just kind of one of those people that likes to rip a bandaid off. And so mm-hmm. I hear you saying that, but I'd really rather just go ahead and eat the things. Mm-hmm. And she was comfortable with that. That's what she wanted to do. And that was, it felt more liberating to her to approach that way. And I've had some people that they are more like that. They're like, you know what? I just want permission to eat darn it, like I'm going to do it. And then other people are thinking, well, I want to do that, but I would literally freak out. And so I'm really going to have to do this in a more stepwise fashion. And, you know, I don't know if, if the whole like healing deprivation piece is coming through and making complete sense, but it's just this idea that you haven't been allowed to eat these foods, whether you've eaten them or not eaten them, there's been no level of permission, because if you ate them, you feel so bad. So I wouldn't have been able to enjoy white bread back in the day, I would have just been a guilty mess, felt like I did a bad thing. And Mm -hmm. so you could say that, you know, a couple years later, when I was intuitively eating white bread was maybe the first time that I ever had it and really enjoyed it. And that that was part of my reversing deprivation. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I love this. And I think to your point, it's so spot on. This is really individual. It I mean, this whole process of healing is highly individual and what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for every single person. So your own experience is is really important in this process and being gentle and nurturing with what works best for you.
0: So, you know, Caitlin, we were just talking about deprivation and how it relates to gentle nutrition. And, you know, I think once a lot of that deprivation is starting to be healed, whether you rip the bandit off and just bring in all the things, or you systematically kind of bring back in foods that you previously felt guilty eating, you kind of arrive in this neutrality where you're like, okay, you know, ordering a bagel or an omelet is really pretty the same deal to me. Like I just listen to whatever I feel like, and they're both morally neutral. And so then I think is when because the playing field is leveled, that neutrality is there, then that gives way for gentle nutrition Mm -hmm. because there's no attachment to it. There's no, I'm doing this because, or I'm ordering this because I want to be the person who got the quote unquote healthiest meal. Like There's not that value isn't there anymore. And so gentle nutrition comes in as a way to really represent you continuing to become more and more connected to your body. And so the variety that happens, it comes from an internal drive. Like, you know how when you're in disordered eating, you operate on cravings a lot? <laughs> yes. And yeah, it's like this craving that kind of comes through. Like, it's like a gentle knowing. You're like, oh, I don't know that the pancakes just sound really good. And that must be what I need. You know, there's a sense of trust there because so much of that deprivation is woven away. And then the neutrality that exists, it's just, you're able to have that agency to choose what
1: sounds good. Yeah. And also when this process happens, you also get to choose foods from a really empowering place. Mm -hmm. When you have variety, when you've made peace with food, at least for me, it really is this place of, oh, I don't have like a list of 10 foods that I'm eating off of anymore. So there's not this fear around food and boxes that I'm checking anymore. It's really giving yourself that full permission to eat. And when you have that full permission to eat, it's checking in to see how your body feels with the foods that you're eating too. So Mm -hmm. like when I was really struggling with binge eating and bulimia and disordered eating and all these different phases, chips, like tortilla chips, that Mm -hmm. was like my one of my big like binge foods. I just thought like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, if I eat one basket, I'm going to eat four baskets and mm-hmm. I can't stop when I have that. And through my own process and this is just one example, it's so interesting now because I love tortilla chips, but now I'm like, ooh, there's definitely tortilla chips that I don't like that just like don't really taste good because I have so many other options in my life of what I'm eating and the variety has just kind of changed the way that foods taste. It's not putting it on this pedestal anymore. And there's not that fear of not being able to trust my body with chips or just the amount of things because everything else is so full in terms of my needs being met in in my life physically, mentally, and emotionally around food. Does that make sense. Absolutely. I think you added a layer
0: that's so important where, you know, there's this idea of food neutrality. Okay. Foods don't have moral value, but you're also talking about food being more of a priority in your life, but a a lesser of a priority. So you don't, it's not that you don't quote like, I want to say you don't quote unquote need it as much, but I'm not sure if that's exactly how I want to say it, but do
1: you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Well, when you're caught up in diet culture and disordered eating and struggling with food, however you want to define it, when you're struggling with food and, and preoccupied with food, the energy that you have and the pedestal that you put food on is pretty high, mm-hmm. because the focus and the expectation is so high around food. And you know, I went through this, and I I'm thinking of clients that I've worked to who've experienced this too. But I always say like okay, can we lower the expectations when we're making peace with food? Not every single meal has to be a 10 out of 10. Yes, um, I call them Wednesday dinners. Yes, <laughs> Things yes. Need. Well, because when you're eating, when you're eating from that disordered place, it is that expectation of this has to be the best and taste aside, it's it could be the amount. You know, I remember feeling so mad if I didn't have A certain amount of food, you know, and just having when I was binging, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. aced like taking like second place, even it was just like, is this going to fill me up? And I felt just so upset internally if I didn't have like enough of one single food. But all that to say, when you're not prioritizing other things in life, physical, emotional, mental food Mm -hmm. does really have that that precedence.
0: It really does. Even when you don't want it to, you're ashamed if it is, it just kind of happens that way when you spiral into it.
1: Mm -hmm. So while we're wrapping up, I want to return the question to you in, in terms of sharing a personal example, if you don't mind. But when you were making peace with food, when you were going through the intuitive eating process, what are some things that stand out in your memory of Bumps that you hit, or foods that you like surprises that happened, or ways that you were able to feel more connected to your body in that process that that you noticed. How did that look for you?
0: Great question. There's definitely some highlights that stand out. I remember making peace with Sour Patch Watermelons. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> they were something I was only allowed to get at the movies. And so when they became food that, you know, we're allowed to have around, you know, I would just buy bags of them. And this was just my personal process. I guess I was more like my client that wanted to rip the bandaid off. I would just have them around and I would put them kind of like out of sight, but that, you know, I promised myself that whenever I wanted them, I could have them. And so I would, and just, you know, at first I ate them really quickly and they would be gone. And then I would feel you know, like my teeth would hurt. Like they would be too much, you know? And that I just—I don't know—I just kept doing that, and it just slowed down, you know. And I, I remember just being so proud of myself that I could have them around and choose when I wanted them. That was a really vivid memory for me. And you know, now they're now they're something that I get on a road trip, or if I'm having a craving and I stop by a pharmacy or go to a movie. But you know, they're really not. There's like you said, there's a lot of other foods that I like too. They just had a special power over me at the time. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that's interesting, just that physical reaction to when you're making peace with food, it really, I always use the phrase choosing food, not food, choosing you, because I think when you're in that disordered place, it does feel like you just don't have, like, you just feel out of control all the time, kind of. And you just feel like food has this power. It's almost like this drug. And when you start to learn about your body, even just recognizing, oh yeah, when I eat, too many sour patch kids, I feel a certain way, or when I eat them too fast, my teeth hurt. Or when I eat them standing up, working, like I don't even like register then I eat them or something. Or when I do it this way, I really enjoy them. But it's making that empowered choice around food and acknowledging, okay, how does this make me feel? Gathering that information that in the beginning can feel like, oh, this is just, I feel like I'm constantly learning. I I hear clients say this all the time. Like, I'm just tired of like learning about myself. And I, I think that's a big, big piece, but also getting to that place where it is way more neutral and it really is just second nature. And you can make the choice based on the information that you're learning about food and your body and how it, how it supports you.
0: Oh, it totally does. I've had clients say, "This is going to take forever, isn't it?" (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you've done one food, but you know, you do. You build. Like I remember saying to myself, like when I was bringing in other foods, I did this with watermelon, so I can do this. You know, I can do this again, and it just you build that confidence, and you feel like if I've done this before, I can do it again. And each, like I always told myself that, like each positive experience I had counted, and I really tried to like register that and. You know, I think when we think of giving yourself permission to eat, like it's just some one dramatic gesture and it's over. And Mm -hmm. I had to renew that every day. Like when I ate something, I like, I have permission to eat this. I have permission to eat this. It was my own little affirmation all Mm -hmm. the time. And I think a lot of people will go through that and do go through that.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I also love what you had said before in terms of deprivation. And this is just coming through that I want to make sure we highlight in this conversation too, in case anybody's confused, because I know how it feels to be on the other end. And just thinking like, I'll never be able to make peace with that food, you know, and that'll just never happen for me. This is why the deprivation element is so imperative. Because if you are restricting throughout the day whether it's mentally physically or emotionally you're not setting yourself up to be able to make peace with food it's essential it is a it's an essential foundational piece in the intuitive eating process to be able to make peace with all foods but really eating consistently and you know we've talked about this before on the podcast but this is why binge eating happens and you can yeah. speak to this Erica and if you have anything you want to say before before we wrap up about restriction and binge eating and, and why it's so important. I I love your thoughts.
0: It is. I I have to say there's just so many people that I've worked with who once upon a time were hungry and start to have these negative experiences with food because they feel out of control. And then there's, you know, the stories and the meaning and the shame start to kick in. And for some people, that is part of the story for them and leading into binge eating. And it's important to highlight that, gosh, you know, when you were on Weight Watchers at age 11, it doesn't sound like really whatever points you were having really wasn't enough for your adolescent body. And, you know, no wonder you used to sneak into the
1: pantry at night. Mm. Yeah. And again, it's it's so sneaky too, because that 11-year-old... Probably was doing it in the name of health and like so many of us are right when we just don't know. And so ooh, full circle moment, but compassion, this is oh, like gosh. the theme song for this entire podcast. Um. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Actually, I, whenever I talk about people who are dealing with disordered eating or eating disorders, I always see people suffering
1: from because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, I so appreciate everything that you're sharing. And thanks for just having a very real conversation with me today too. And thanks everybody who's just hanging out with us because this is really one of the more authentic conversations that that we've had just because Erica and I know each other and I appreciate you just sharing your truth and your expertise and being so willing to just take a seat on the rug with me and chat.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. I really enjoyed it. And this, some of the stuff I haven't thought about in a long time. And it was really nice to talk about and just really be reminded of how real this stuff is and how challenging it can be. And also that, you know, 10, 15 years later, it can feel like a fleeting memory.
1: Oh my God. I think about that all the time. Where can everybody find you? Plug yourself. And we'll link everything in the show notes too. Yes. Oh, well, I have my
0: podcast where we had you as well. Yes. Um, My nutrition podcast. I spend a lot of time on Instagram at Align Nutrition, and I also have my website, alignnutrition.com. And yeah, I love working with people both privately and in my online community. And it's cool, like we were talking before we started recording, just to have that time to really connect with people directly because this stuff is so intimate and personal. And then like we're talking about here and sharing, it's also nice to hear from other people. And that's that's kind of why I do both.
1: Mm. Love, love, love. And we will link everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. You're awesome. And just appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you love that episode as much as
0: I did. I really think it illustrates the process of what it's like to heal your relationship to food when you don't really understand intuitive eating quite right away. And also filled with some valuable nuggets here and there of different topics. As always, I'm here for you. If I can further support you in your journey, I have been doing this work for 10 years. I love it. I've seen people through this process. I know exactly where you are and where you need to go. So reach out, inquire to work with me as needed. I'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Thanks to you for listening. Find me on Instagram at Align Nutrition. Let me know if you like this or if you have other topics or ideas for the podcast. I love hearing from you. If you've gotten something out of this, help us reach more people who need this message by subscribing in your podcast app. A nice rating and review also helps us reach more people and is so appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time.